Welcome to Let's Chat Dental with Anne Budenberg. In this series, we're going to be talking about dental careers and squiggly careers in the UK. But of course, don't forget to like, rate and review this episode. So I'm joined today by Harry Marshall. And in this episode, we're going to chat about early dental careers, one person's view and some of the successes and challenges so far. So Harry qualified in 2018 from Newcastle University and is a GDP now working in private practice with an interest in orthodontics. So welcome, Harry. And Hi, um, maybe we could just take you back to when you qualified in 2018 and um, just start with you describing what you've done since then. So following foundation training, um, which is in the northeast, um, I moved back down to the northwest and I joined the practice that I did my work experience in, which was a little bit um, different because it was people that I'd known for many years already. Um, and then there was providing many, mainly sort of NHS treatment with some sort of scope for private work, but not a lot. Um, alongside that, I worked um, a day a week in a different practice. Um, and over the, sort of the next two years, just did um, a little bit of work in two or three different practices, just making up the full time hours. Um, during COVID, that was a little bit of a tricky time. Um, one of my practices became a UDC, so I returned to work very, very quickly after the lockdown. Um, as the targets increased, my stress increased, so I felt everything was just getting a bit on top of me. So I began to look for um, private jobs, but as you can imagine, it was it was pretty tricky. Um, and just managed to find um somewhere to work three days a week. Um. Other than that, I've been doing um, a postgrad diploma in orthodontics with Mandeep Gasal at Loughborough um, Orthodontics, and hopefully I will be gaining that diploma in January after my um, after my exams, which I'm a little bit nervous for. <laughs> Not quite ready. I don't think you ever are. Mm -hmm. No, no. Um, and then I'm currently working two days a week at the private practice and one day a week in an orthodontic practice, just working pretty much as an orthotherapist. And here I am now. We're going to pick up on just a couple of things you said there. And, you know, the job market changes because there's big highs and lows where there's, you know, too many dentists or there's not enough dentists. And we're in a, a shortage um, phase at the moment. But over these year, years, you see all this, the, the market changing. You said that post foundation training, you ended up doing working in a few different practices to make up full-time hours did you find it you had to you couldn't find a full-time job that you wanted so you had to make it up with um a couple of part-time jobs so the practice that I was in to start with the one that I'd done my work experience at I thought that was going to be sort of the practice where I would be um moving up to full-time there um but they only had they only had surgery space for the for the three days which obviously wasn't enough. So I had to find work elsewhere. Um, but finding one day a week or two days a week is is trickier, but it can be done, definitely. And mm -hmm. I really enjoyed having that that variety, um, breaking the working week up by breaking, you know, by you working in different practices was good. It was good, very good. Yeah. Did you feel that quite beneficial seeing how two different practices work, you know, and being able to compare and contrast? Yeah, so even even though I've only been sort of practicing for yeah the four years, 
I've worked in several practices already <laughs> and you can see what works, what doesn't work. Um, you know, the grass isn't always greener, um, but every practice has its positives and its negatives. Uh, and I think working in multiple ones, you get to find what works and what doesn't a lot, lot quicker. Um, most people who own practices, I feel, um, learn by their mistakes. Whereas as an associate, you can go in and learn from, you know, other principals' mistakes first um, and, and find sort of the best, you know, working method for you. Yeah, I think you're right. And of course, you know, often that's the driver for people that they, they work in a number of practices and they think, actually, I think I could do this better myself. So that you buy a practice and of course you find out it's not always as easy um to do it yourself you know nothing nothing's perfect um so um just so just going back a little bit to um foundation year um so you know what sort of impact did foundation year have on you how did it shape your future decisions so i think um when i graduated experience was low um, but I feel like your knowledge is 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 high, um, and that's purely because of the way that the the education system set up at the moment in universities. Um, but going into sort of dental foundation, um, my trainer was really really good, um, very um, knowledgeable. wasn't bothered about being called in, you know, fifteen times a day, and that was just you know they were accepting of that. Um, but the training course up in the northeast was really really good some of the people um who you know came in and started speaking to us were mostly gdps um but some of them were, were hospital and um, staff and they were very very knowledgeable and so it was sort of there that i uh, started to look into sort of orthodontics um and it was it was sort of looking at myself that i sort of realized that maybe um you know there's more to orthodontics than, than than meets the eye or people sort of make you believe um when sort of speaking to them in, in sort of general practice i think you're right going back a number of years um before we had all the aligners and short-term orth orthodontics people's interest in orthodontics in practice was quite low it was a real minority of people that did it and you know it's absolutely changed exponentially in the last what, 10 years and not showing any signs of declining probably it's still on the on the increase but I think it's really quite interesting you're one of the few people few young graduates I've really come across who's thought there's more to this orthodontics actually it's not maybe quite as simple as you think just sticking those aligners in and you want to know a bit more how did you decide um, on your next steps I think for me it was deciding whether I could uh, go back into the hospital and education system and go for sort of specialty training, would that be something that would interest me? Um, and I sort of decided very, very quickly that it's not for me. Um, when I was sort of getting towards the five, you know, the end of the five years at dental school, you were sort of starting to get itchy feet and you were, you know, the bureaucracy of, um, of hospitals um, is tough. Uh, and you feel almost, you know, chained, <laughs> chained up. You can only do, um, you know, work to a certain to a certain level. Um, so I decided I didn't want to go into, you know, specialist pathway, specialist training because the oral surgery side of things just didn't interest me. 
so then I was I was looking for other alternative ways of maybe getting sort of my experience in orthodontics um and the old associate at the, my first practice um graduated in the I think it was in the 70s so he's been practicing for quite a while but he was saying when he first came out lots of GDPs dabbled in a little bit of orthodontics mm-hmm. uh, and that's when I started to think well maybe you know we can sort of go down you know this pathway of just being a GDP and, and getting that sort of variety um, but also sort of narrowing the field towards you know orthodontics um, and then the course by Mandeep Gasal popped up um social media working its magic um and sort of looked into the course and it was a postgrad diploma and I was thinking yeah this, this is this is something that I'm I'm looking forward to uh, and decided to enroll into it we'll come back to the course because I think you know it looks like a really comprehensive course that you've um that you're kind of almost finished actually with Mandeep um but you know how did you really develop this interest in orthodontics um, I think from early on, it was looking at where my own restorative work was failing. And that's classic ones of, um, you know, chipped central incisors were or, or chipped lower incisors were ones where, you know, no matter what you sort of did to them, they always seemed to come back in after, you know, 18 months, you know, two years, and they always seem to be breaking off again. So it was looking into sort of the wear patterns and sort of the prognosis and the aesthetics of restorations, because, you know, over time, obviously, you know, placing multiple restorations, teeth over erupt, they tilt into the space, the the beautiful restoration you want to place, you can't place it because there's not enough, you know, occlusal clearance. Um, But, you know, on a personal level, it's I have a missing upper left five and, you know, congenitally missing. And I've sort of noticed how everything is sort of unbalanced. Um, uh, my left-hand side is is sort of leaning forwards. Um, the wear on my teeth is becoming more uneven. Um, and, you know, I'm 28. <laughs> so I've got to think sort of long-term, you know, I've got to think about long-term for these teeth. Could be 70 plus years from now. Um and are they going to last in this current setup? So, you know, orthodontics might be something that I will look into for myself. Um, and it sort of, you know, piqued my interest from there. There's quite an interesting statement, actually, um, by Joe Noor on the sort of ethics from the ethics committee on some of the precautions um, with regard to the sort of short term orthodontics um, or the liner type treatments. And I, he, he just, I think he gives some really sort of sound advice there. And it's, a you know, clearly giving people all the options. And and um, I think just saying, as you said, that sometimes if you're only trained in one method, then it can be a compromise. Not always, but it can be a compromise. And, you know, you want the long-term consequences to be, um, as good as it can be and as good as it would be with conventional orthodontics so I think we'll we'll put um, a reference to that statement in the resources because I think it, it's it's really sound it's very ethical um, and just it's just giving people all the options definitely and I think you know some of the patients that I've referred um, or had the conversation with regarding orthodontic treatment isn't 
the people who come in with mildly rotated, you know, upper centrals or anything like that. The people who I say, have you considered orthodontic treatment to are the people who have, you know, the the teeth that are are wearing or, you know, they've come in and said, you know, I keep on having this filling done. I've had it done five times. Is this the thing for me? And you sort of say, yeah, it is. You know, you need to consider moving the teeth around to get them to be favorable um but it's it's not just moving one or two teeth it's it's dealing with the whole mouth it is there's no such thing as you know um short-term orthodontics orthodontics is orthodontics and your end goal ideally should be the ideal um which isn't always possible but at least give the patient that option is is definitely key absolutely and I think we'll we'll go on to discuss further. The more you go into something, you think, gosh, I really didn't know anything about that. But it's the more you delve into it deeply. So how did you decide on the on the training course? Because there are, you know, there are all sorts of courses for orthodontics and long courses, the full diploma in orthodontics, the short term orthodontic courses. So how do you decide from that range of uh, courses that are out there um it, it was a little tricky so um the ortho course is, is the course that i'm doing um it was set up um a few years back so i'm in their third cohort i think um but they set it up and they marketed it at gdps um who were interested in ortho and the thing that interested me was that they didn't ask for any prior orthodontic experience at all yeah they wanted to teach people who yes have done a little bit or done a lot so there's a guy in my course who just does you know ortho and has been for the past you know couple of years but he's still attending the course because you can still learn lots um but I had seen other courses that were sort of asking for, you know, two or three court, you know, two or three cases to be completed um, and have that basic understanding of orthodontic treatment. And I just thought, how do I get that unless I just wing it, um, which isn't something that I would do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. so finding that course, it was a little bit of a risk because it's, it's not well established, but I'm so glad that I've done it because it's it's really really um in depth um but it's not to the point where you're just looking at textbooks yeah so the guy who set it up mandeep um was initially a a gdp and then went to do his specialist training um after a few years of being a a gdp um and he went in with very limited knowledge but he also said that he came out of the specialist training with very limited you know hands-on knowledge um, but a lot of theory, <laughs> much like, you know, was in mm-hmm. um, foundation year. Um, and a lot of the stuff that he teaches, he has a lot of, um, you know, important key points, um, you know, in bold, don't you know do this or don't do this. And he says, the only reason I know that is because, unfortunately, I've made that mistake um, and I don't want you guys to do the same thing. Um, but he, he sets it up so that you don't have to, you know, you're not learning the the torque values of the brackets or anything like that it's the theory it's the hands-on theory you know what do you do in certain situations not not maths or anything like that it's 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 planning and the cases once you've got that planning sorted then you know you can you can take it on from there and 
but yeah, hopefully in the next few weeks I'll have, have finished the course. But I've only just scratched the surface. I know that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. You, you do. There's more, a lot more to learn. Um, but I only had a very brief look at um, the outline and it seemed quite initially quite heavy emphasis on the treatment planning. And you also mentioned him you know, saying, you know, lots of don't do this. So presumably there's quite a big element of how do you manage things when it goes wrong? You know, do you manage it yourself? Do you refer? Do you give him a call um, and be mentored? You know, does he, is do, is that, sort of part of it quite well looked after so the way that we tended to do it was that you would get the patient in um, you would do your full ortho assessment full images um, a scan or imps um, either or if you thought you know if, they, if you talk to the patient and they were adamant that they only want Invisalign you know obviously put it through that system um, and you would send it all in a um, you know in a shared platform to Mandeep and you know you'd you'd you write up your provisional treatment plan, what your problem list, you know, how are you going to fix it? What's your ideal outcome? What's your likely outcome? Um, and he would, you know, get back to you within a, a week or, or two weeks with that sort of treatment plan. Um, but going forward from there, you know, any problems, we've got a, a WhatsApp group where, um, you know, we can put in questions um, and it's not limited to orthodontics. We're, you know, having, asking people, you know, how do we get this crown off? And we're all, you know, a nice group to to talk to. But it's it's having someone there that you can turn to to say, what do I do next? Um, and also, what do I do if this happens? Um, I think is is the big the big one. Yeah, what having do you that do? support network there. Right, <laughs> great. No, I, I think as you say, it's important because you're not just talking about orthodontics within the group because you can't really just have orthodontics in isolation, can you? Because it's very much part of restorative dentistry as well. It adds a you know huge um, extra to your restorative capabilities that you can move teeth rather than do it with a restoration. Yes. So things like, you know, at some point I might do a um, a TAD course, so a temporary anchorage device course, um, and the over-erupted molar that's stopping you from putting in that lower denture, you know, because there's not enough space, or you're thinking, oh, maybe I have to crown that tooth, and, you know, it's it's an unrestored tooth, but it's over-erupted. You know, you could look at TADs, okay, moving that tooth, intruding that tooth by, you know, a few millimetres, and that might give you enough to, to let that patient keep that tooth but also restore function so very conservative which is a very nice way of doing it if you can avoid sort of drilling and um doing restorations that you'd rather not do and if the patient's willing 100 percent, yeah 100 percent. i think you only have one set of teeth um and i think everyone has to do everything they can to try and to hold on to as much tooth tissue as they can and sort of as many teeth as they can for as long as they can. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, um, so just sort of moving on. So, you know, in the last, in the last podcast, um, we were, I was speaking to somebody about mentoring in dentistry. Um, so we, we have touched on this already, but is this something you feel is, is going to be really useful to you going forward in the future? 
Massively. Um, it's, I think it's the perfect way of learning. So finding a mentor that you get on with um, sort of in, in a friendly way, but also in a, um, in a, a work way as well. Um, someone who has the same, not ethics, but how they are thinking about treating the patient is similar to yours. Um, that has to be sort of the, the key part of it. Um, but they will have made the mistakes already. Um, and then passing that information to you is, is, is key in terms of reducing your stress. Um, because you can treat patients more predictably, um, and, and go from there. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, there's a, a great video about it was American video about mentoring and that there was there's a lot of young young dentists on it. And then the older ones are that's what they keep reiterating. You know, I made a lot of mistakes and I don't want those young ones to do the same. But of course, you know, you'll probably make some different mistakes, <laughs> but you'll, you'll make some different ones, but hopefully not the same. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, I know. I know. No, it was, I think it's great. The mentoring, it just needs, it, it's it's in implant dentistry, it's in orthodontics, and it is about, um, it just needs to be probably embraced more um, and accepted that that is a great thing to do. Um, yeah. I think, I think as, you know, a young dentist, I think we have sort of, you know, a, a big, issue um with the system that we work in um with regards you know to available mentoring um i think the system that a lot of the young dentists work in in terms of the nhs doesn't allow as much sort of time to to learn um because you are so concerned about targets and things like that um you do have to have time to to look at the mentoring to look at what's going on in your work and what's going wrong with your work um and if you're thinking about you know uh how many udas you've got left for the month you're not likely to to think about it at all <laughs> i think you're right that in a practice it's a bit hit and miss whether you've got the time it depends as you say it depends on targets you know if it's not quite as target driven and your boss is not quite as target driven then perhaps there's the time and if there's a culture if there's a culture of mentoring um that they want to develop someone they want you to stay then you know that you're in a great place but that's in your ideal situation and yeah. um everyone is just as you say it's very fast paced so you would really have to set time aside with someone to do proper mentoring um so i mean i guess that's what you've done you're buying it none of those courses are cheap no um, <laughs> but you're investing in your future what kind of price was it um so it was between 10 and 15 um, i can't remember it was the low end but it might have changed since then. I think that's pretty standard. Some are more expensive than that. Some are a bit less, but you know, that's you're investing in your future. So um, exactly. So just sort of moving on a little bit. So what do you think are the biggest challenges, biggest challenges for young dentists um, at the moment? I think it has to be the, the lack of experience that we have. Um, 
coming into general practice. Um, at dental school, obviously before COVID, so that was sort of when when I graduated. You know, I came out and I'd done possibly two molar endos, um, and you had to do you know a, a, a we call it a competency. Um, but you could do a competency for molar endo on your first endo. Um, and it basically was a tick box exercise saying, I have, um, you know, put rubber dam on. I have access to the tooth. I found three canals. I filled three canals and the x-ray looks okay. Um, and that was, that was you ticked off. That meant, you know, you were competent in doing root canal treatments. In reality, you know, you <laughs> were lucky. Uh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Most yeah. of us, it takes a lifetime to be good at root canal treatment. Uh, and then after one, you're, you're competent and you're signed off for, for, you know, graduating on it. So, you know, coming, coming out of that supported environment, coming into, you know, foundation year, it has to be really supportive. I know some of my colleagues had supportive trainers, some didn't. Um, it was dependent on the area as well. Um, so some had really supportive TPDs, training program um, directors, uh, and some didn't. Um, and it was it was hit and miss. So some people came out into general practice and felt fairly confident. Some felt really not very confident. Um, and some didn't even go to general practice purely because of that. Um, they went straight back into into the hospital system because they they didn't have the confidence to 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 do sort of the the general dentistry side of things and that's sort of openly admitted and I think it's completely fair enough. Um, it, it's it was tough. It was definitely tough. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, a couple of weeks ago we were speaking to some of your colleagues who who qualified with you in Newcastle, and it was a real mixed bag of experiences. Um you know you had a good experience and and this is um you know one of the problems that that particular fd year is a very a year it, you're very impressionable and it can have a huge impact on the rest of your career so for good or bad um and i know that you know what you've said that someone just it put them off general practice completely if they had a bad experience which is such a shame um because in a good practice it's a good place to be exactly yeah um I, I was lucky in both my fd practice and also the the first practice that i was in you know afterwards um and that's you know one of the reasons why i went there was because not because i knew i was gonna you know earn mega bucks or anything like that it was because I, I knew the people that were there and i knew they were decent people um who have you know experience that been at the same practice for sort of years and years um and had good knowledge and were ethical that's the that's the other thing that helps that's the key isn't it what are the things that are important to you in your next practice the values and ethics has come up for you quite a few times and having that supportive environment uh, i think that sometimes people are not able to kind of identify what the things that are really important to them until they've maybe a few years on but if you can identify that early on I think that really helps what you what you don't want and what you do want um so we've, we've talked a little bit about the treadmill of if once once you get into working in the UDA system what effect did you think that had on you 
Um, I think for me it was um, I, I almost felt like I was de-skilling in some aspects. You know, when you got to sort of the um, end of the end of the year and you were trying to get the the units in, you were doing things that you didn't necessarily think were you know the right to do. Um, it was it was very very tricky um but it also didn't allow you that time to experiment with with new things that you wanted to try so one thing for me was um in my fd practice they they used bioclear matrix system um on a few patients um we had the sort of the rep come in and speak about it and it's a sectional matrix system um and it, it's it, it's about providing um a better contact point with the with the adjacent tooth better emergence profile um less um chance of overhangs and all that kind of stuff um and that's one thing that i really really wanted to 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 bring into my practice but it takes time and when you're on that treadmill that's the one thing that you don't actually have um but again fortunately in my sort of in my um, first practice you know target was secondary you know patient care was first target was secondary and that was throughout the practice and that was sort of the, the values and the ethics of it okay so you did actually have the time to be able to sort of try and develop that system yeah yeah i had the time to do it um and you know i've not looked back since um the the difference is phenomenal um if no one's tried sectional matrices i think they should um, for composite work it's it's you know it's a game changer you don't have to worry about you know is my contact point going to be there because it's it's there it's always there follow the steps it's always going to be there and I think you know for the patient long term it's it's better um, if you look at patients who have you know code threes on their BPE it's probably around you know um, a restoration you know an amalgam or a composite it's probably around a restoration and it's because, you know, there's probably a, a, a small ledge. The contact point isn't great. So there's probably a little bit of food packing. And, you know, it's our work as dentists that is actually hindering that patient. You know, it's they might have twos elsewhere or ones elsewhere. And then that three around a, a restoration. And, you know, is that really the patient's fault or is it something down to us as well? Yeah, for sure. It doesn't make sense, certainly. I mean, just thinking about when you look at bite wings on posteriors and you you can tell if that posterior composite has been done with a normal matrix band because you get that very straight profile don't you and you know there's bound to be food packing and difficult to clean sectional matrix yes you just it's a no-brainer isn't it definitely and if you've got the time and you've got the the principal who will will buy it in for you <laughs> yeah yeah exactly we we kind of get defined by the system we work in really don't we um <clears throat> so obviously you qualified pre-covid which was good but you couldn't avoid covid so what impact did that really have on your your work work and work-life balance um massive um it really sort of opened my eyes to um the system you know and nhs practice um when we initially went into the lockdown um both me and my partner worked at a um practice that became a UDC 
And when it came along that we were becoming a UDC, we were basically told in, in no uncertain terms, you either work or you don't get paid. Um, and we were the only NHS den- dentists as the, the principal sort of did private work. Um, you know, I'm glad that we did it. But at the time it was terrifying because we didn't really have that much information to go on regarding, you know, COVID. And we knew obviously it was transmitted via the mouth and via droplets, etc. Um so, you know, we had a lot of responsibility at that time going through the referrals, accepting, rejecting them, antibiotics over the phone, you know, um it, it was tricky and we did it all at the start with just the um you know the standard masks um a visor and uh, an apron um and you know we sort of just had to get on with it but after the uh after that we were doing it for sort of about three months um the practice principal decided to hand us both our notices um stating financial reasons but, you know, despite him being supported by the NHS for sort of our wages and as being a UDC and, and providing that what we thought was, you know, an essential um, aspect to, to patients for their for their care and well-being. Um, so at that point, we had three months to find, you know, new jobs in dental practices that were basically operating at a reduced flow. And the NHS practices were, you know, obviously doing less UDAs so if a, 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 an associate had moved on they didn't replace them because they could do the sort of the work themselves um so it was very 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 tricky um but what sort of opened my eyes to to you know the NHS system was actually not what principals were doing or you know um what we were actually doing on the patients it was actually more the sort of how it's set up um and when they opened up the pay dispute service um i i lodged you know a complaint with them for the for the for the notice that was given because you know they were told the practices were told you know you're getting the money um to pass on to the associates um to provide a either telephone triage or udc work um and that's on the proviso that you you know you retain them sort of thing and we weren't um but i haven't heard anything from it at all since and that principal's obviously gone on with their their lives, you know, probably stressed because all principals are stressed. But, you know, for me and my partner, that was a really, really tough three months because we weren't sure, you know, what what we were going to do. Yeah, I think there were some terrible stories of the way associates were treated during that time um, with no comeback. Um, you know, nothing, as you say, nothing came, seemed to come of it. Um, the, because the money was coming into the practice, um, you were putting yourselves at risk. Um, so oh, there's a difference. You know, we talked about very ethical practices, looking after the patients, looking after you, looking after the staff. And you've just given an example of probably the other end of the spectrum, which is 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 pretty sad um, reflection on some practices at that time, really. Yeah, it was it was really tough and what was you know if someone's business was going under because of it then you sort of think well you know fair enough that's someone else's livelihood you know they've got to decide between themselves and you know you but I think it has to be genuine and we we sort of knew it wasn't genuine because the CBCT you know machine arrived 
there was you know workmen coming in at the end of the three months to to sort of size up for you know a new reception lodge outside and things like that so it was just a, a smack in the face really yeah 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 absolutely if people are upfront transparent you can take that but as you say um that didn't seem genuine um and, and you are not the only people that suffered but you know it what a different situation we're in now nobody was recruiting at all at that time everyone was just tightening their belts and t- sitting tight we're we've gone to the other extreme now um so let's moving on from that that was you know we're in, we're in happier times now so for you what what's the secret to work happiness and career fulfillment uh, i think it has to be work-life balance um I think I think a lot of people think this is why we've got a workforce shortage is because following COVID, following lockdowns, I think a lot of people had epiphanies uh, and realised that, you know, they were working so hard and, you know, so often that they just forgot how to live their lives. Um, and you have to figure out, you know, what kind of life you want to live and then work to support that. Um, because in my eyes, what's the point in earning, you know, two hundred thousand pounds a year um if you're literally working six days a week and you know you can't spend it um what what is the point life is is short in some cases um and work isn't everything no completely completely uh agree i mean it was a huge change everyone wondered whether some of the lessons learned in covid would um be sustainable and i think they were for some people and of course a lot of people have gone back to the same old thing again but for a lot of people it was a very significant point in their life and you know really taking a step back just going back a little bit again to sort of career because we know that um you know when we when we look at careers they're not linear and people go in this sort of here they're in the sort of squiggly what we call squiggly careers they go in different directions with their careers and you can go off at tangents but um undergraduate knowledge of career opportunities just want to ask you about that so if you could speak to your undergraduate self now what advice would you give yourself um i don't think i made the most of the um the excellent clinicians that were teaching us um i think i got sort of so caught up in in trying to pass the the criteria the tick boxes um that you do forget that you know you're there to to learn um and you know everything that you learn there is going to have an impact on on what you're doing you know further down the line um but it's so easy to speak like that after you've you know been through it and you've passed it um but it would be definitely going sort of you know going back and 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 you know spending those extra 10 15 minutes talking to the clinicians asking for their advice you know their opinion and you know how could i have done this you know filling better what techniques do you use when you you know when you're doing fillings or 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 doing extractions um and really sort of squeezing that knowledge out of them would i think would have been my my biggest my biggest um regret of sort of dental school Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's always some people that seem to manage to do that. Um, I think what you're saying is a mature head, isn't it? Looking back. And yes, you can say that about courses that you go on that 
sometimes you come away, you should have asked more questions. And I think that's probably always the way, you know, get as much out of those experiences as you can. Definitely. And especially when it costs you sort of 70 odd thousand pounds now for your, for your yeah. undergraduate degree. <laughs> Absolutely. You were paying. Yeah. Did you get value? Could you have got more out of it? Probably. <laughs> but there's a lot going on then. You're you're rushing off to do something else at the end of a clinic because, you know, there's yeah. a lot of other things going on at university, aren't there? Social and so easy to say now. So going back to this, how do you get that balance? How do you find that happiness at work being engaged and fulfilled so there's a guy who you might have heard speaking so lord mark price he was former managing director of waitrose and deputy chairman of um, john lewis and uh, he talks a lot about um this sort of ethos and philosophy that you know the happier your workforce are the more engaged they are the the better the organization works, the more profitable it is, the happier people are, you know, everyone wins out of this situation. And one of the things you can do through his um, website um, when he's talking about this is you can do sort of a happiness rating for you, for yourself at work. And the, the thing, he looks at sort of six things, six key things. And of course, they're all for different people. They, you know, they come at a different value. So, I just thought I would go through those with you and ask you if you could just give them a, a rating out of 10. So the first one is reward and recognition, i.e., you know, being fairly paid. I think I'd have to put that down as a, an eight. Um, unfortunately, we live in a world where you know money does actually make the world go round. Um, and being fairly paid for, for the work that you do is essential. Um it allows you to to do all the things that you you know really enjoy uh, in your spare time. Come back refreshed and and work better. Yeah, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. Yep. Okay. So the second one is so information sharing. So within the practice, for example, you you know what's going on. Um, I, I think I put it as a seven. Um. For me personally, I like to sort of get involved. Um, I know sort of my partner doesn't. <laughs> She'd probably put that down to a, a three because, you know, she wants to go in and do a job and, and come away. Um, whereas for me, it makes me feel more um, part of the team. Um, I, I like to think that I have some, you know, good ideas. Um, and, you know, I I want to provide it, you know, ideas to make my life easier to make the staff's lives easier and obviously make the principal's life easier. And if you don't share the information, how do we know? Yeah, absolutely. So you feel inclusive. So it's being inclusive that you're not just, yeah, you are a really part key to that practice or business. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've got seven for that. Empowerment. So that's just, again, it's, it's a similar thing. You're, you're empowered. So you're feeling People make you feel you're a key part of the decision-making process. Again, you know, I put it a seven again, because even as a as an associate, you are, you know, self-employed, but you can still be at that practice the same amount of time as the employed person. Um, and, you know, taking a lot more of the responsibility, you know, the, the, of what's happening. Um, and... 
those big decisions that are made will have an effect on you. So I think you do have to be, you know, a part of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So the next one is well-being. So, um, so we're, we're when we're talking about well-being, we're talking about the physical, um, physical well-being, mental well-being, and financial well-being. And so, how would you rate that out of ten? I think that's got to be up there. That's the most important thing, isn't it? Um, you know, physical and mental well-being are essential unfortunately financial does tend to link in with those and they're all you know they are all linked um your physical well-being will will lead to your good mental health um as does you know your financial side of things so it's i think it's the most important mm -hmm. okay so have we got a number for that 10 10 that's a 10 that's a 10 good right as you say dentistry is quite a physically and mentally demanding and if you're not you're not going anywhere unless that's good are you no um, <laughs> not at all so yeah stay fit stay mentally fit all right so instilling pride so that's kind of sense of purpose where do we rate that and uh, so i've put that down as an eight um i think our sense of pride as sort of dentists it's what makes us strive to do better. Um, I think if you don't rate the the sense of pride sort of highly, you know, you're you're not bothered about the work that you you're doing. Yeah, you you you're just doing it for the sake of doing it, um, rather than doing it to do your best. Yeah, and there's many aspects to that which we don't really have time to go into, but yeah, very very important. Um. I haven't touched on perfectionism, but dentists have got a lot of dentists that are, are very much in that perfectionism camp. So they are. Um, okay, and the final one, um, number six, job satisfaction. So that means you, you know, your personal career development satisfaction and your relationships with the staff and colleagues in the practice. Um, I've put this one down as as a nine. Um, the personal and career development, you know working lives are longer and longer even you know with what's a well-paid dentist we're still going to be working probably up to up to 60 um and it's a lot of years um to be doing the same thing over and over again um if you don't have any career development um and again you know we spend seven eight hours a day with with staff and colleagues and sometimes that can be five days a week so you know they often say that you're you know, you spend more time with your, your work colleagues than you do with your family. Um, so it's it's you know well up there with 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 having um you know good relations with those with those staff and colleagues to make you know your job satisfying. Excellent. It's, it's no surprise the numbers that you've you've said after you know the previous discussions we've had. So just sort of finishing off really, and moving away from dentistry. What do you do to relax when you're away from work? Um, so I've got a dog. Um, so they, you know, she's always wanting to be entertained. So relaxation is is minimal. Um, but I just bought a new guitar, so I'm I'm hoping to play a lot more of that. Um, I do tend to go and um, I do a one-on-one -on -one reforma pilates, um, with a a physio. Um, that was mainly for my knee, which I had an operation on. But I think the the benefits in terms of work. Uh, and that that physical aspect of work is it's worked wonders. So I tend to do that sort of you know once a week or uh, once a fortnight. 
Okay, excellent. Yeah. Well, I think actually we didn't talk about, you know, musculoskeletal um, problems for dentists, but there's an awful lot of dentists with um, bad backs and, you know, through, you know, poor posture or so, you know, Pilates, I think is something that a lot of dentists um, have got into because of that. Right. So thank you so much, Harry. I am just going to summarize and say that I think you know, really interesting so far, four years out, but you have you seem to have finding your niche or have found your niche, um, but will go on to develop, I'm sure, in lots of other ways. Um, we've talked about um, developing yourself, finding the right type of practice for you, which is ethical, um, puts the patients first, talking about investing in yourself. And we've talked about that work-life balance um, and looking after yourself having time away from from dentistry so that has been um very very interesting to talk to you and um all the uh, anything we talk about um the course with mandeep gosal um some of the quotes from um, british orthodontic society and um anything else um that we can throw in actually um the College of Dentistry have got an early careers framework. I think we'll put that into the resources as well. So um, please um, give us any feedback and um, just want to thank you again, Harry, for your time after a long day in the practice. Thank you very much, Anne. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Let's Chat Dental with Anne Budenberg, talking about dental careers and squiggly careers in the UK. Don't forget to like, rate and review this episode.